Well, so glad you all are here this morning, uh, especially, especially, every, every Sunday is special, but especially this Sunday morning, and the reason being is because we are about to complete what I believe to be a monumental task, and that today is our last day and the last sermon in the book of Isaiah, and we left no chapter or verse untouched. And so here we are. I don't know how many sermons it was exactly or how many weeks it took us um, because some of them are lost in time and space. So I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, but I, I believe, I believe personally, I can, I can at least speak personally, this has modified, changed for me the image of our God to a properly biblical image of who he is in his character and what he has accomplished. And I hope the same has been true for you, that we have had a clearer vision of our God because of the deep dive into his word. And I don't believe that this last chapter will be any different. And so let's look at it together. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66. And as we begin, we're going to look at the first six verses together, okay? Isaiah 66. Verses 1 through 6. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen. But, what, but they did what was evil in my eyes, and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Okay, so we'll stop right there this morning. First thing I want you to see in our text this morning is a contrast. A contrast between those who view God a certain way and those who view God this way. There, there are two ways, two approaches to view God, and they're contrasted here, okay? So the perceived relationship between God and man, it informs one's approach to God. So I want to say that again to make sure you're with me so far. The perceived relationship that we have between God and man, it informs the way that you approach God. So the way that you understand how God and man relate to one another it changes how you approach God. And there are two ways that we can see this in two ways that it's contrasted in our text. And the, and the first is this, that God exists to serve humanity. That's why he exists. 
But the second view, the relationship between God and man, is that humanity exists to serve God. Two contrasting views are put before us in this text, and God is responding to both groups. How do you view God? What, how do you understand the relationship between God and man? That God exists to serve humanity or that humanity exists to serve God? And you should contemplate this deeply because it affects everything that you do. It affects your relationship with the Lord. It affects the way that you approach God. Because if you believe that God exists to serve you, then you're going to approach him as such. But if you believe that you exist to serve God, it changes the way that you approach him. Isn't that correct? And don't we misunderstand this sometimes, and so unfortunately it changes the way that we approach God because we forget maybe for a moment that God does not exist to serve you, but instead you exist to serve him. So how do we see that in our text? It says in our text, First of all, beginning by a portrayal of God, that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And so what is the house that you would build for him? And what is the place that you would build for his rest? Now, it was very common uh, back in this day that you would build a, a housing for your God. And uh, that's what those pyramid-like things that you see so often in ancient Mesopotamia, it's called a ziggurat. Everybody know what I'm talking about? It looks like uh, a, a square with another square with another square. It looks like steps up a triangle, right? So uh, ultimately, it would have a giant staircase, and that's where the, go the God would house themselves. And so you would have to look up at your God, right? So it places him up. Now, where are you going to put God? The earth is his footstool. So what house can you build for him, the true God? Right? You got that image? What house could you possibly build for him? How can you house him, the true God? You can't. Okay, so all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Everything that you see, touch, and experience came to be from him. So you're going to take something that he created and say, here's a house for you out of the stuff that you made? That doesn't make sense, and that's the point. But he says in the second half of verse 2, this is the one to whom I will look. So just stop right there. Every, every person whether you view God as God existing to serve you or you existing to serve God, both ways, both groups of people want God to see them. That's true, isn't it? Both groups desire God to look at them. And he says here, this is the one to whom I will look. You want God to see you? Be like this, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. That's the one he's going to look to, and that is contrasted with someone else here next in the text. So we, we might put it this way. There are two ways of approaching God then, two ways of seeing the relationship, but there, this, this translates into two ways to approach God. In the first way, it, when humanity serves God, this is the good way, right? What do we see? Humanity serves God, and this is an internal disposition of humility. That's what God wants. So if you are humbled, that, picture that physically. You are humbled. You are pushed low. That means that there is someone above you, right? 
So it is not humanity up here, God down here, and you're our servant. Wrong. You got that picture backwards. You got to flip-flop it. God is up here, and we are his servants. We are bowed low. And so the one that God will look at is the one that properly acknowledges the true relationship between God and man. Do you see it? God will look at the one who truly views the relationship with God and man the way that it should be. God does not exist to be your servant and just do whatever you want. God, do this, and you make demands of him. Wrong. We exist to serve him. That's the proper relationship. Okay? So the people want to, in this situation, they want to give to God true and acceptable worship. Okay? If you look at the first part of verse 5 also, you see it. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, right? That is, they want to listen to what God has to say because they want to give him something that is acceptable to him. Is any and everything that you offer God in service acceptable to him? Let's just make sure and get that right. You say, I want to serve God today, and I want to serve him by doing this. Is just anything you come up with acceptable to him? No, it is not. How do we understand what is acceptable to him? Through his word. And so we tremble at his word and when he speaks. Why? Because we want to approach him in a way that's acceptable, right? Because why are we here? What do we want to do with our lives? We want to give to him. So when we say we're going to come to worship, and you're going to say come to church, come to worship, whatever, all those, I don't like any of those phrases, by the way. You don't come to church. You are the church. Uh, so I, that doesn't really make sense, but at the same time, I still say it. I, you know, you come to church, I'll see you at church, or but we know what we mean by that. Uh, we are the church, and then we gather as the church, right? Uh, but then we also come to worship, but then we are worshipers all the time. You with me? So all those are true, but um, we need to, uh, to understand what the word worship means. The word worship in English comes from a combination of two old English words, which is worth and ship. Combine those, and it's worship. So when we worship, we are giving God proper value and worth. That is worship. So worship means to give God his proper place, weight, and value, to give him his proper worth, worthship, worship. That is where it comes from. That is the word, and that is true. That's what we come to do. But it is a giving not a receiving. You understand the difference? Why? Because we are his servants. I think there is such a backwards understanding of what God exists, the, the reason God exists in many services. It has become evident in worship services. Why? Because just by its very arrangement, people come to do what? To receive. Where it's backwards. That's not worship. Worship is coming to give, not to receive you understand but it's backwards and that's why in many situations the lights are all turned off and the focus is on the stage because we are all coming to simply observe and receive like a show like a performance that is not why you're here you are here to give god worship with your life that is why you are here you are here to give give god praise give god worth value lift him high and humble yourself that is why we gather, to give God worship. And so when things get backwards, what happens? Everything becomes about our preferences because we're not receiving what we wanted to receive. So 
this, I didn't like this, I didn't like how hot it was, I didn't like all the screaming babies, I didn't like all the, what you name it, you fill in your own blank because you've all thought those thoughts. And so have I, by the way. I'll, I'll go like this, okay? We've all thought those thoughts. And it happens when we, see at first maybe you thought, well, I know God exists, that we exist to serve God, uh, but we get it backwards when we think that we're coming to give God worship and yet we make it all about our own preferences. And I don't think that's why you're here. I think you're here to receive. And what you wanted to receive just got messed up and so you're mad about it. And now you're gonna cause problems within the church because you didn't get what you wanted. But if you were here to give rather than receive, you never would have thought those thoughts. And so there's a fundamental misunderstanding we're only about five minutes in or so, aren't we? Whew. Okay, so two ways of approaching God. And this first way is what God desires of us, that we might be those who are humble, contrite in spirit, and trembling at the word of God. That, that is a servant bowed low, right? That's what God wants. But there's another picture here contrasted with that, and it actually gets more of an emphasis. Why? Because this is our temptation. So we're going to look at that. But the second approach, which we're going to look at, is this. It's the opposite, where God serves humanity. And what that ultimately displays itself in with respect to religion is it becomes an external display of pride rather than an internal disposition of humility, which is what it should be. It actually changes form, and it becomes instead an external display of pride. And what does that look like? The people want to receive from God. But as they want to receive from God, what that turns into is false and unacceptable worship. But why? Why might that be? It's because that's not worship. That's why it's unacceptable, because it's about you. And yes, that can even be, and many times is, religion. Religion. And so we falsely believe that if we simply come and do these practices, we will bend the ear of God. Why? Because you think God serves you. So if I do these religious practices, if I give money, if I, whatever it may be, we all have our own thing, right? Read your Bible for a certain amount of minutes, pray for a certain amount of time, do these particular works, right? Whatever it is, you think that if you do that, you are pleasing God by bending his ear toward you ultimately because what you want is to feel satisfied about yourself and your own efforts. Why? Because it's all about you. It's all about you. And you are not making it all about him. So how do we see that in our text? Look at it, verse 2. Look at the religion here and look at how God views it. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one that breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense is like one who blesses an idol. If we didn't get any of the other contrasts, we at least got that last one, didn't we? All these things people are offering, and they think, see, they went to the word of God, didn't they? Because how did they know to do this, to slaughter an ox? Because that's what they did, because God said to do so. So they think, okay, slaughter an ox, done. Check, ox slaughtered. Now, hear my prayer and deliver me. I did what you said, now hear me. Why? Because you serve me. So I'm going to do what you say, but then it's only, the only reason I'm doing it is so that you will give me what I want. Or so that I feel better about myself. I did what God asked, right? So he who presents a grain offering like one that offers pig's blood. Does God want pig's blood? God does not want, if you didn't know, God does not want pig's blood, okay? So 
you're offering a grain offering. That's literally what they were doing, offering a grain offering. Has God said, give me a grain offering? Yes, and so that was, at, that was in his word, right? He said that. So we look at the word, and we do what the word says. So do we have a problem with that so far? So then why did God not view it properly? Because their external display was really of pride because it was about them and not about God. So you can be doing something that you find in the word of God, and yet to God it is not that thing because you're doing it all wrong. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So whatever act of worship you have come up with, singing songs I think is a great uh, example because we all stand and we sing, right? And we say, I'm giving worship to God, I'm, I'm singing. Now, has it ever been true for anyone in this room, I just wonder, that we're singing a song and you're literally singing the song and what you're singing is true, but you are thinking about something totally other than what you're singing. Has that, I mean, I don't know, maybe. Has that possibly been the case with anybody in the room? Obviously, I say it like that because that's true for everyone. We are distracted worshipers. And so we're giving God something that looks like, now the person next to you maybe look, looks exactly like you, right? They're singing the songs, you're singing the songs. And you just by, by natural uh, disposition, you just, you look like you're into it. But you're not. You're not thinking about what you're singing. Your soul is not humbled before him. You're not considering the truths of what you're thinking. You're not bowing low to your God and truly giving him praise. So one of you both look the same. One of you is acceptable to God, the other not. Do you see how dangerous this can be? Insert that into anything that you do out of obedience to the Lord. It can look right, but to God, it is not. Is that a danger that we should be aware of? What does God look at? Who does God look upon? The one who is humble, right? The one who, is lo the one who truly trembles at his word. You may say, yeah, we'll do what the word of God says. You should too. But are you trembling at the word of God? I must do what he said. I Why? Because I'm his servant. What happens to a servant who doesn't obey his master? You get disciplined. Now, you are still a servant, right? You don't become unservanted if you are truly a servant of God, right? But you do receive discipline, right? All right, so we see this big contrast in our text. And look at what happens with the, when these two groups collide, okay? So you have the group who, who sees God properly and the group who does not. And then look at what happens when, when, starting in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers hate you. Stop right there. That's the contrast between the two groups. Do you see it? Your brothers, that's two groups. The your, that group, and the brothers, that group. The your is those who tremble at the word of God, okay? Those who are approaching God properly. And the brothers are those who are not approaching God properly, who are doing sacrifices and all these things, but their heart is not right before him. They hate you, and they cast you out for my, name, for my namesake. Yeah, we're, we're expelling you in all to the glory of God. Let the Lord be glorified that we might see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. So they attempted to shame you by putting you out, but it is actually they who will be shamed. And then look at what happens in verse 5. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from, the, from where? 
from the temple. What's happening in the temple? The sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Where did God just go and render recompense to his enemies? The temple. Whoa. That should make us shudder because he just went to the place that is most holy, where his true servants are, right? Aren't those the servants of God? If there's going to be servants of God anywhere, where are they going to be found? In the temple. And that's where they just heard this sound of an uproar. And what's happening there? God is killing his enemies. And where are his enemies found? Offering grain to him in the altar, slaughtering an ox for him in his temple. That's where they are. This is scary. And I say scary because it's so close to home, isn't it? So here, when these two groups collide, these two views of God collide. They don't understand each other, obviously. They don't know what you're doing. Those who have pride-filled hearts, they are not able to cope with the difference in the way that we view God. They're not able to cope with it. So what does this turn into? Hate. They hate you and your heart. They hate it. Have you ever, I would just wonder, have you ever experienced this? Someone who calls themselves a follower of God, a believer, truly, and you are doing what you can do to humble your heart before him and serve him and give him worship with your life, and someone comes along who is legalistic, ritualistic, religious, and says, you're not doing it right. Do it like this, and then they, get, they actually hate you for it. Because this is the exact picture of what's happening here. And they kick you out or they, they separate. Why? Because you all are doing it wrong, but I'm doing it right, and they do it to the glory of God, but in reality, they are the ones who are wrong. What a picture. That's how this chapter starts. A contrast between those who are the enemies of God and those who are the servants of God. That's the contrast. The enemies of God kind of look like the servants of God on the outside because they're doing what God's word said, but then on the inside, actually things were wrong. So, we continue to verse 7, and it seems to change subjects. There is a thread that continues here, and the thread that continues to the end of the chapter is a contrast between the true servants of God and the enemies of God. Okay? So let's continue in verse 7, and I'm going to read several passages here, or uh, several verses here through verse 14, okay? It says, Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? I might back up because maybe you, maybe you didn't anticipate so quickly there being something we need to pay attention to. Uh, I did this at my first several initial readings. And so as we're starting it, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. She uh, is Lady Zion, who we've been talking about for many weeks now, right? So uh, Lady Zion... Uh, has given birth. Before pain came upon her, she delivered a son. That's pretty quick. Those women in the room who have been pregnant, and you were like, okay, it's, it's about, you know, it's about time, and we're about to have to, oh, the kid came out, and I didn't even know it. You know, before the birth pains even started, there's the kid. 
And that's the picture already in the text is that there was someone who was pregnant and before birth pains even came, that's how quick it happened. It came instantaneously. There it was. Who has heard such a thing? Right. No, we haven't heard such a thing, have we? That doesn't happen. Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? And of course, all the answers to that are, well, no, you're not going to bring to the point of birth and then say, well, uh, never mind, um, you do the rest. And you say, well, Lord, without your help, I can do nothing, right? So is God going to lead up to a point and then, then back out? No, God's going to do, he's going to fulfill all that he promised, and he's going to do it in a miraculous way. That's the big picture. God is going to fulfill all of his promises all the way up until the end, and he's going to do it in a miraculous way. Okay? So, verse 10, rejoice. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Not all love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. And, and that's really when we know that there is true love right? When there is mourning, when things are not right. That you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you might drink deeply with delight from her and her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip bounced upon the knee. See, this is a, a well-cared-for, joyous child. Do you get that? Satisfied, all the milk you ever want. You're good, plump, right? Good-looking baby. You're bounced on the knee. You're cared for. You're loved. All is good for you. That's the situation. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. That's, that's the big picture. That's the imagery that it's leading up to. So shall you be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. It will happen. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. There's the servants. And he will show indignation to his enemies. So there's the contrast at the very end. Do you see it? So the Lord will make himself known to his servants. That's one group of people. And he will show indignation to his enemies. There's the other group. So there's that contrast coming back into the picture. So for his servants, what will God do? God will show himself to his servants, okay? Um, <clears throat> I kind of have a, a summary here of what's going on. There was a call here to the servants of God to look forward in faith, believing all that God would do, and we would say will do, accomplish through his righteous servant, okay? So there are the servants of God, but we know how that goes if you've been with us through the book of Isaiah. You're called the servant of God. Israel was called the servant of God. But how did those servants do as servants? No good. Those called the servants of God were doing no good as the servants of God. So what did they need? They needed a good and righteous servant to be a proper servant of God that they might get all the blessings that the servants of God get. That come through what I just said? Yeah? So because we can't properly be the servants of God, we need a servant of God so that we might be blessed as a servant of God, even though it wasn't us, it was him, right? So there's a call here in this text to the people of that time and all, all through time for God's servants, God's people, 
to trust and have faith that God is going to do what he promised and he's going to see it all the way to the end and there will be comfort for you eternally. And you will be happy and joyful and filled with abundance and peace just like a well-cared-for baby. That will be you and you shall see. You will see it. It will come. In your hearts, they will rejoice. It's going to happen. Don't ever doubt. Don't ever think that it's not going to happen. I wanted to take you just briefly to Hebrews 11 because I I think that there is such a a good bridge between this and what is said by the author of Hebrews in, in Hebrews 11. I can read it for you. It's Hebrews 11, 8 through 16, and it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And that takes faith, right? That's, that's, he, he went out and he said, go. He's saying, oh, okay. And so he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went and he lived in the land of promise. In a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs, the same promise. Heirs of the same promise. For here's why and how he lived in faith. Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God himself. I want you to keep that verse in mind. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, who throughout all time in the city of Jerusalem has been the builder. People. People build the city. It has never been that a city has been built and it just... It came to be, but there will be a day when a city comes to be, and God will bring it to fulfillment. So by faith, Sarah also uh, herself received power to conceive. Even when she she was past the age of being able to do so, she considered him faithful who had promised, there it is, a forward looking to the promises of God. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, they were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, verse 13 says, and this is really the point, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, Here's the point, a heavenly one. Where did they ultimately desire to live? In a city that was from heaven. We know, we know that city. It's the city we've been talking about. But what did they do? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Have we received all that has been promised? No, so how are we to live? In the same way, by faith. And that's the whole point, isn't it? We are to also live by faith. And how are we? We're to, we're to view these things the same way. We are strangers and exiles on the earth because there is a city to come whose designer and builder is God. We know that. It's coming. They looked forward to the work of the servant who would bring these things to be. We look back at the work of the servant. Do you see how both of those take faith? They looked forward at the promises of God 
Now, we still look forward, but actually we look both directions because we look backward in faith at what Jesus Christ did. They look forward. They were only looking forward because the servant had not yet come. But we are also looking forward because all the promises of God have not yet been fulfilled. All that makes sense? So there is a call in the text to look forward to the completion of God's promises. Is God going to fulfill all he promised? And will his servants find comfort and rest and peace? And will it come like a river? You know why it says river, right? I've got peace like a river. I've got peace. So what, is, what does that mean exactly? It's that it flows and it flows and it flows and it never ends. It's not a puddle. It's not a lake. It's something that's flowing that never dries up. It never runs dry. It's a continual stream that is the peace that's coming for you. So the servants of God will see God and rejoice. That is coming for you, should you be a servant of God. But the enemies of God, they will also see God, but they will see him coming with vengeance. And they will experience suffering, whereas we will see God coming as a savior, and we will experience joy and gladness. Right? There's the big contrast. So we want to be careful, backing up to the previous point, that we are properly bowing before God in our hearts, humbling ourselves before him, trembling at his word, because we are concerned that we are properly and truly servants of the living God, and not someone who seems like it from the outside. We want to make this about God and not about ourselves. We want to serve him with our lives and give everything that we are over to him as a living sacrifice, right? Isn't that what scripture says? We are his. We want to live our life that way and give him glory and honor and put us in our proper place. That's who God will look at. That's his servant. And those servants of God will see and rejoice, but the enemies of God will not rejoice. So last portion of the text, beginning in verse 15. For, behold... That four comes on the heels of verse 14, of course, which makes that contrast between the servants of God and the enemies of God. So the servants of God um, are going to have hearts that rejoice, verse 14, but his enemies, God is going to show his indignation toward them. For, behold, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like the whirlwind, and render his anger in fury and rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens. That's where I want to go. I don't want to be part of verses 15 and 16. I don't want to be part of that scene. I want to be the part that is separated out. They purify themselves eating pig's flesh, uh-oh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end altogether. So it says they go into the gardens, and as they go into the gardens, it seems like, oh, that's a pleasant place, which I hopefully led you to believe. Following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, and they will also come to an end together, declares the Lord. You thought there was peace, but no peace. That's scary. That's over and over again. That seems to be the message, isn't it? 
I feel like I have peace in my religion and my rituals. I feel like I have peace when I enter pleasant places. Wrong! It's your heart that matters. It's your heart that matters. I said that kind of loud, sorry. I didn't, I'm not a shouter, I promise. I'm going to towel and pat my head. Maybe I am. I don't know. Maybe I am a shouter. Verse, seven, uh, verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. Isn't that the point? Not only does God see what they're doing, he knows their thoughts. He knows their intentions. He knows their hearts. And whether they were doing what seemed right or not, it doesn't matter. God knows their hearts. Do you know God knows your heart this morning? He knows why you're here. You can't hide it from him. And we want to be careful that our intentions are pure and that we're bowing low before him with a humble heart. Who are you trying to please? Trying to please yourself? Trying to please other people by being here? You think it's right? You should come with the intention of bowing your heart before your God and simply pleasing him with your life as an offering and a sacrifice. I'm here to give God praise, to love his people, to lift them up, and not to be so concerned with myself and my own righteousness that I think I'm accomplishing here. I'm concerned with God, and I love his people, and I want the best for his people, and I want the best for the word of God, and that's why we're here. It's so different, isn't it? The mindset of why people might even walk in these doors. Don't think that there's comfort just because you came in here. That's wrong. This is not the dwelling place of God, by the way. Right? Like the whole house of the Lord thing. Thank you for, you know, letting us gather in your house today, Lord. Uh, this little building here that used to be a tattoo parlor. This is not the dwelling place of God. But by the Spirit of God, all believers are the dwelling place of God. You are the dwelling place of God. So if, you're, if your behavior changes, by the way, when you walk out these doors because you're no longer in the house of God, you so misunderstand things, it's crazy. The presence of God goes with you wherever you go, even when you're sleeping. The presence of God is with you always. And do you tremble at his word always? In every thought that you have, in every intention of your heart, is he always right there and you're always concerned with giving him true and proper worship? and not changing yourself when you come in these doors thinking that you can fool us? And even if you're successful, even if you do fool us, you can never fool your God. He always knows. I am well versed in what it looks like with someone's life to fool everyone in the room week after week after week, but to know for certain that there is something wrong internally and all you're doing is playing a game. Is that what God wants? Ritual? Religion? Please people with your eye, do what's right when you're in here gathered together, and then go and live however you want, think however you want, do whatever you want? Wrong. So I'm just, I'm, I'm pleading with you to not have that mindset, and if that is your mindset, repent immediately and change your heart's disposition to bow before him now if you haven't previously. Now is the time. It is never too late to bow your heart low low, low before your God who is high and lifted up. Where were we in the text? I don't even remember. <clears throat> I've, I stopped with my notes a long time ago. I don't even know where we are. What's the next slide, Rob? Help us get back on track. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Okay, so verse 18. 
Uh, so uh, I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and shall see my glory. I will set a sign among them, those who see God's glory, by the way, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, and some places are listed to represent the far reaches of the earth. Tarshish, Pool, Lud, who draw the bow, Tubal, Yavin, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. They shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers. Oh, there are, remember the brothers listed earlier that hated them? Those were not the same brothers, are they? Because no thanks, keep them at a distance from me. But no, they're actually going to go to a place in a foreign land that have a different bloodline than you, and those are now your brothers, and we're bringing them, and all of a sudden, that makes perfect sense in the entire context of Isaiah, doesn't it? Is that now your brothers are those from far reaches of the earth who see my glory, who previously did not see my glory, and I'm drawing them in, and they will be your brothers, and you will rejoice together. It's amazing when these things come together, and we see the full picture having gone through all this together, isn't it? They will bring all your brothers from the nations and offer to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters and mules and dromedaries. Um, I'll just admit to you, I had no idea what a dromedary was. Now, maybe that's poor education. Um, my, uh, does anyone know what a dromedary is? Yeah, one person, two people in the room, three, four, okay? But, well, yeah, go figure with that one. But what <coughs> okay, evidently it's a, it's a one-humped camel, particularly from Arabia. So now we all of the simple minds are informed, okay? So what is all this saying, though, is that on the animals local to the place of all the inhabitants of all stretches of the earth are bringing glory to God. And isn't that what we want to see? Well, I guess I'll say that again. It's, so all people from all over the earth are pictured here bringing glory to God. And isn't that what we want to see? Yes, I hope, because that actually, if, if you truly do want to see that, that actually is an indication of where your heart is, isn't it? Because if you don't want to see that, you do not properly have God in his place, because you want to see all people bowed before him just like you are, because you recognize how high he is, that he is servant of none, and that all should bow the knee to him. So that's what your heart's desire is, isn't it? That pe people, humanity, God's creation would properly recognize where they belong. And we need to recognize where we belong. Properly bowing ourselves before him, but we forget over and over, don't we? Verse 21. No, we didn't finish verse 20, did we? Mules, dromedaries, yeah, that, that was the sidetrack. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them I will also take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. And for a Jew reading this, that you're going to go to a foreign land and you're going to bring them here and you're going to make them a priest and a Levite? You can't. They're of the wrong bloodline. You're defiling your own temple, Lord. And he's saying, well, you better change your opinion of that because I'm going to have a whole kingdom of priests and they're going to be from every nation. Verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. 
from new moon to new moon, Sabbath to Sabbath, he's just indicating from, beginning, from all time, it's never going to end, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. And then verse 24, uh, I think is, and obviously I have no say in the matter, but I see now how verse 24 properly ends the book of Isaiah. And I want you to see it with me. They, notice the contrast of two groups here as we read this. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. Okay? Do you see two groups there in that sentence? They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me. Two groups. Those looking at dead bodies, and then the other group, dead bodies. Those are the servants of God truly from the heart, and those who, whatever they looked like, were not actually servants of God. They were actually enemies of God, and God killed them earlier. Do you remember? And now the servants of God look, and what do they see? Dead bodies. And those who are slain are, what did the text say? Many. That may not be the picture that we, we so rejoice over and say that's kind of grim thinking here. This is what the Word of God says, and it, the Word of God wants us to have this image in our minds. I didn't make this up. This is what the Word of God says, and this is the image that God wants His people to have in their mind, is that if you are a servant of God, you will look at the slain, and there will be many. For their worm, that is those who are dead and are rotting, their worm will not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now, if that rings a bell to you, their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. That, you remember that, right? Because that's quoted uh, by Jesus. And uh, let me find my reference here. Mark 9. I got so far off my notes, I don't even know. I, I found it, though. Mark 9, beginning in verse 43. Look at it just briefly. Jesus is about to quote what we just read in Isaiah 66, 24. Jesus quotes it. Are you there? And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? Because it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. The unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? Because it's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And he's about to define what and where hell is. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God. Oh, so life and the kingdom of God go together. Then with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. So we know the place that's being referenced here by Jesus in Isaiah I, Jesus understood that to be hell itself. So there are those who are going to die, and Jesus helps us understand that as the place we call hell, and that is where there is an unquenchable fire. What does it matter that the fire is not quenched if the bodies are already dead? Because it says, as we understand more and more about this place, is that the smoke of their torment goes up for how long? Forever and ever. That is... The picture is those who are dead and yet dying forever. And their torment continues and the fire is never quenched. And so their torment and their smoke and that burning, it never ends. That's the picture 
And this is terrifying to us, and it should be. If we believe it to be true, it should make us tremble, right? Isn't that what it should do? It should make us tremble and say, I want to be found as a servant of God. How do I do it? Well, get your life cleaned up, start going to church, make sure you're giving money to the church, um, make sure you're singing when it's time to sing. Whatever it may be, we, we insert things that say, well, I'm so terrified now that I want to get my life right. Wrong. You should get your heart right. Bow your heart before him. And if your heart is right, guess what's going to happen? Then your actions follow out of a pure motive rather than out of religion. Because just religious actions, how far did it get these people? It got them slain. Right? So this is the big contrast. Two eternal dwelling places. The place of comfort for who? The servants of God. And how are the servants of God known? By their humble and contrite heart who tremble at the word of God. That's how we're known. And then the second is the place of mourning, of terror, of distress, and of suffering. And who goes there? The enemies of God who didn't have their hearts right before their God. How do you get your heart right before God? It takes the very spirit of God to get your heart right before God because when God comes into your life, he comes in and he finds a hard heart in darkness and sin. And you can't just wake up and decide that you're going to change your heart. It takes a work of God to change the fallen, broken, sinful heart that is in rebellion to God. God comes into a person's life and he changes their very heart to desire to submit to him. And that is the progress of the Christian life, the initial recognition of bowing to him. And then what happens for the rest of your life, you're figuring out how to better bow your life down before your God. That's it. That's the point that is called sanctification, that is called maturity in Christ. And should your heart be right and ever bowing low and learning, trembling at the word of God, learning the word of God, learning God's character, the more and more your life properly reflects the servant of God that you should be. Does this make sense? I hope that it does. And I hope that you clearly see the contrast here because that has been the contrast throughout the entire book of Isaiah. God, we're your people, aren't we? Then why are there enemies coming? God, help us now, please, because we're in trouble. Uh, but then as soon as you save us, I'm going to go sacrifice uh, something to an idol. God, well, we're in trouble. Are you Are going to help us? Please help us. And all it is is a people who think they are the servants of God, who are not the servants of God because their hearts are wrong before him. They have not properly heard the word of God. They have not seen the word of God. Why? Because their eyes were blind and their ears were deaf. We see it? I hope you do. So I'd like to end with one of these three passages that I'm going to choose. Okay? So wait, I already did the Mark passage, didn't I? No, so we're good. I'm just going to... Okay, so your homework then is... Um, oh, man. Philippians, yeah, thanks, Sherry. Yeah, let's read the longer one. Your homework is that Philippians passage, Philippians three seventeen through 21, and we're going to end our time together in the Word by looking at 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12, and I'd like to just read it and, and hopefully uh, draw out just a little bit of application here, and we're going to close. Because if you are a servant of God and your heart has been changed and you desire with your life to bow your heart down before him and to truly properly be a servant of God and you want your life to reflect that, right? Then this, knowing that there's a promise coming for you, this is what your life should look like, okay? That's what Peter's describing. He's trying to help us get the big picture, okay? If this is you, 
Here's what he says. First Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us, see that's what I was just talking about, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And where is that? It's kept in heaven for you. And you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So there is something coming for us, right? Is God going to fulfill his promises all the way to the end? You better believe he is. Is he going to guard your salvation for you? Yes, he will. So verse 6 says, Now in this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary. Why would it be necessary that you be grieved by various trials? If you're not quite there yet. And who's not quite there yet? Everybody in the room. So what can you expect? Various trials to come upon you. And what should you do with those various trials that come upon you? You should rejoice. Why? Because God is doing something with that trial. What is he doing with that trial? Well, it's so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, tested by fire, you may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So for that future time that's coming, you are being purified. That's what's happening. You are being purified by your God. And so when that trial comes, we need to remind each other. So you remind me when my trial comes. I'll remind you when your trial comes. And we all say to each other collectively, because we all understand it the same way, that when our trials come, we want to encourage one another knowing this is testing your faith. This is purifying you to become the person that God wants you to be. Always this is true. Sometimes our tests are like this and someone tells you about something they're going through and you're like, uh, you're struggling through that? Yeah, that seems like nothing to me. But other times we hear about someone's trial and they think, I don't know how you're dealing with that. Don't we know both ends of the spectrum? This is purifying you. Should you be the servant of God, should God have changed your life by his spirit, this is coming upon you. And you should rejoice and we try to encourage one another with these words. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Now, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched carefully and inquired, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was in them, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Where are the sufferings of Christ predicted? Probably that is in the mind of Peter well, the most obvious place is in the book of Isaiah. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so here we have the connection between a prophecy given about the suffering servant who was to come and they recognized that they weren't serving themselves because the servant hadn't come yet. And so they were serving us because now the servant has come. He has finished his work. We look back on it. They were looking forward to it. And now that we have that finished work, even more so can we rejoice in the, what is coming for us in the future. God said he was gonna fulfill all these things and you better believe he's going to fulfill all these things. And where is he now? And where is his coming? He is coming, and he is coming for you and for all the servants of God. And if you are found to not be a servant of God, he's coming for you too. 
And so we ought to get our hearts properly right before our God, and we ought to do it today. And how do you do that? By confessing your own sinfulness and your inability without the work of the righteous servant, Jesus Christ. He took on the penalty for sin that you deserved. He was crucified, he died, but he was raised from the dead and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in power and glory waiting for that time when he will come back. And you bow in your heart to the truthfulness of who he is and what he has done. We're gonna pray now and we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together, okay? Let's pray.